Well, I'm so glad to have all of you here this morning, especially for those of you that are joining us online. If this is uh, your first time, this is a great weekend for you to be joining us here. Now, you're kind of coming in in the middle of a movie. We are four weeks into a series called Who Needs God Anymore? And if ever there was a time where if you missed anything that came previously, to go back and listen, this is one of those series. This is that series. You can go to newlifewichita.com. You can go to podcast.newlifewichita.com. And even if you haven't missed any of this series, every single one of us in this room listening to us online, every single one of us has someone in our life that needs to hear this series, but the only way they're going to hear it is if you share it with them, though you might bribe the, buy, buy them lunch, something, have a conversation afterwards. Uh, and I want to once again just make really clear exactly why we're doing this series and who it is that I'm talking to, because last week was pretty stretching for some of you. There's a quote that I've shared here at New Life a number of times before because it's one of the most on-point that I've ever heard. It's actually from an atheist, Penn Jillette. Uh, he's a world-famous six-foot-seven magician, an actor, and musician, an inventor, and author, best known for his work, uh, his work with his uh, magic work with the uh, with uh, Penn and Teller. And Penn has been in the spotlight as a passionate advocate for atheism. Yet just a few years ago, he was sharing on a video on YouTube about a guy who came up after a show. And in the midst of this conversation, gave him a small Bible. You can actually Google this. Uh, Penn actually speaks warmly of the interaction and how this guy was respectful and thoughtful. And Penn, again, an outspoken atheist, said this. He said, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. People who like, share their faith or try to get you to believe what they believe. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe that without a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, there, at a certain point, I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And so this series of conversation is primarily for two groups of you. The first is for many of you, you firmly believe in a benevolent God. You are convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And I'm trying to equip you. I'm trying to equip you because some of you are hesitant to engage in conversations with friends and family and coworkers because you feel inadequate or you feel ill-equipped to have these kinds of conversations with skeptics and agnostics and atheists, the nuns and duns. So this is me partnering with you to equip you. It's why I want you to buy and read or listen to audiobooks like Stealing from God so that you can inform yourself. Because as Penn Jillette, the atheist, said, if you believe everlasting life is possible, how can you possibly live your life and not tell others and engage in these kinds of conversations? The second group... This is for the nuns and the duns, for those that have one foot out the door of their faith because maybe you're struggling, you're struggling with doubt. This series is for anyone who's moving towards or who have moved into the dun or nun category, the no religious affiliation, which is more than half of this city because you've experienced people who say they're Christians, but you watch them or you listen to them or you watch their posts on social media and you conclude, you know what, if that's what God or what Jesus or what church is about... I am not interested. 
especially over the past few years with all the vitriol around politics and COVID and racism and the ugliness and just the seeming incongruity in large segments of the evangelical community, or you've concluded that reality and science or, or pain or suffering is irreconcilable with faith and you just feel like you can't pretend to believe something you're not sure you believe in anymore. And I want you to know that we launched this church five years ago with you in mind. And so many have come to me, and I've loved it. They've found New Life to be that perfect community where you can belong before you believe or belong as you work through what, you, what it is that you believe. And my hope is that for you that you would reconsider not the Christianity of your childhood, but a grown-up faith with a grown-up God and a different perspective. Because for those of you who might be struggling or having doubts, because you're smart, you don't necessarily move right into the realm of atheism, because the idea of a godless, creatorless universe where you just have to manufacture meaning and purpose for life and morality and absolutes is a little unsettling. Living in a reality in which life is just a struggle, bookended by birth and then death, and then four generations later, whether you like it or not, nobody's going to even remember your name or remember mine. And while that may be true, it can just leave you with a sense of dread and despair. And I'm not saying that all atheists live in dread and despair. All I'm saying is that for most people, they struggle in their gut. They struggle to check the atheist box because they feel like, I'm not sure I can defend that either. I just feel like that opens up a whole other category of doubts. So you just feel stuck in the middle, especially if you had a childhood faith that never grew up and you outgrew it. Or after week two, for example, in this series, you discovered that you felt let down by God, but what you discovered is you were let down by a version of God that never existed to begin with. And again, if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to that. Because for millions, for millions, the world got cluttered up with a bunch of little g-gods that we discovered a couple of weeks ago didn't exist and don't exist to begin with. And for some of you, you thought you had to choose between science or faith. But as we talked the true, version of Christian, the true version of Christianity, these two things are not irreconcilable. They're not in conflict. And then last week, you, we did a bit of a, a history lesson, and this was so huge. We said that Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. And the reason there is, is a Bible is because of Christianity. But somewhere along the way, we embrace the idea that the Bible is Christianity. And because of that, as the Bible goes, so Christianity goes. Yet that is untrue. And it has set us up for uh, the way such that the way that nearly all atheists who debate on college campuses and in their books and on their videos is the way they debate what they go after is they attack and they pick apart Christianity by attacking and picking apart what? The Bible. But Christianity does not rise and fall on the integrity and the verifiability of the entire Bible. Christianity preceded the Bible. And the reason that we even have the Bible is because of something that happened. The Bible did not cause the resurrection. It was the resurrection that inspired what would become the Bible. In fact, Jesus did something that got him into trouble over and over again. Jesus was always telling the Jewish people, you know, our scripture, because he was Jewish, he was saying our scripture, what we call the Old Testament, he said, do you realize that everything in our scripture points to me? And this was blasphemy. Yet some of his closest followers, they, they discovered it, it lines up. 
our, our scriptures say this will happen, and this is what he did. Our scriptures say this will happen, and this is what happened. In fact, they started believing this is the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, of all our Jewish scriptures. And then he was crucified, and it was game over. Obviously, he was wrong, and we were wrong about him. And there were no Jesus followers after the crucifixion. No one on planet Earth believed Jesus was the Son of God when they saw him die. But three days later, it all changed when they ate and drank with a dead man walking. And suddenly, all those Jewish followers went back into the Jewish community in Jerusalem going, he was right. We lost faith, but we've seen him. He's back. We're back. Everything in our Jewish scriptures points to him. And then what happened was, as Gentile followers, Gentiles became Jesus followers, they began to be exposed to the Jewish scriptures, and they realized that these ancient texts that previously they had zero interest in, they began to realize these ancient texts pointed and predicted Jesus. And there are so many examples of this. I'm going to give you just one, Isaiah 53, and I'm not even going to show you the chapter. I just want to give you a little homework assignment, hopefully today, like by the end of the day, uh, especially if you're someone you say, like, I just, I'm not really into the Bible or I kind of struggle to understand it. it, it, it this is so simple. Just Isaiah 53. This was written about 700 years before Jesus. This is just one example. But today, just read Isaiah 53 for yourself and just simply ask yourself this question. Who does this sound like? Because as you read this text, it was written 700 years before Jesus. It sounds exactly like Jesus. The point is this, that the first over three centuries before Christianity was even legalized, Gentiles became enamored with the Jewish scriptures. And then they did something so offensive to the Jewish people, they took the Jewish scriptures said, we're going to take these and uh, we're going to combine these with these other first century documents written by the followers of Jesus and we're going to bind it together. And eventually it became known as Tabiblia the books, the Bible. Now, why is all this important to any of us? And simply this, as I said last week, if anyone walks away from, some, uh, from faith because of something in the Bible, they walk away unnecessarily because Christianity does not rise and fall on a book. Christianity preceded the Bible. The Bible came much later, but the reason Christians take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus did. Because when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, then it's logical we're going to go, we're going to go with whatever you say. And Jesus took the Jewish scriptures seriously. Je Jesus took what we call the Old Testament seriously. He seemed to take literal much of the Jewish scriptures. In fact, Jesus said, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the, fulfill the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. So I want to have the same view of the Old Testament that Jesus did. And I would encourage all of you to do the same. But all that to say, Christianity, Christianity does not rise and fall on the verifi, verifi I'm going to say big words, verifiability <laughs> of everything in the Jewish scriptures. It just doesn't. In fact, I'd go so far, as, so far as to say, if you never possessed, never read, or even had access to the Old Testament, it does nothing to undermine Christianity. Because first, in the first century, People followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection and because the evidence was overwhelming. Christianity did not begin with people who believed something. Christianity began with something with people who saw something. 
Every other world religion requires you to have faith in faith and faith in the words and claims of an individual and just believe. Christianity from day one never expected anyone to have just have faith in faith, just believe. No, there was overwhelming evidence. We saw him killed by Rome. We saw him buried. And a few days later, we had breakfast with him on the beach. Who wouldn't believe? How much faith does that take? Almost none. Christianity from day one never expected anyone to just believe in belief. And Christianity is not as fragile as people think it is. Now, that's the introduction to today's message. But don't be nervous because I've got a red clock right back there keeping me on task, all right? So here's where we're going today. Since the resurrection punctuated that what Jesus told, said about himself was trustworthy, it's logical that what Jesus said about God can be trusted. Jesus said, Nobody's going to give you a clearer picture of God than me. Now, John, who was an eyewitness to all of this stuff, believed in Jesus, and then after Jesus died, quit believing, and then after the resurrection, started believing again. John was arrested by Emperor Domitian, and he was put on the Isle of Patmos to rot, because every time they killed one of the close followers of Jesus, a thousand more rose up, so they decided, we're not going to kill John, make another martyr, we're just going to let him rot on this island. And this is very important, especially for next week. John had seen unbelievable bloodshed. John had seen most of his closest friends die to acts of first century terror from Rome and from the temple. And John was there the day Jesus was talking to just the twelve, and Jesus said this to them. He said, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And they're thinking, no, we haven't. We just see you. So Philip, one of the disciples, he says what everyone there is thinking. Philip said, Lord, show us. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You keep talking like you and God are on a first-name basis, so would you just ask God to like just, just make a quick appearance, just like a bloop, you know, just something, just something really fast, nothing to scare us and terrify us. Just, we just want to know what God is like. And Jesus answered as if God were speaking, do you not know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's like, Jesus, only a crazy man would say that. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. In other words, if you want to know what God says, if you want to know what God thinks is important, just listen to me. If you want to know what God is like and what he's up to in the world, just listen to me. Watch me. Then he says, believe me. Believe me when I say I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. He's going, I, I know this is extreme. I know I'm equating myself with, with God. So if you can't believe me just because I'm saying it, look at the what? The evidence. I'm not asking you to just believe in belief or have faith in faith, you know, for the sake of some warm, fuzzy, think positive thoughts, religious thinking. I just want you to watch and then draw conclusions based on what you see, based on the evidence. And all the things that he did were documented for us. And there weren't just 12 witnesses. There were thousands of witnesses to all of the things that he taught and all of the unbelievable things that Jesus did. So as we take things to the next step in discovering what God is really like and do we really need him 
anymore. It requires us answering the question. If we were just to erase everything that we learned as kids about God and how to view God and, you know, is he some old bearded guy up in the sky? Is he kind of like Santa Claus stalking me when I'm naughty, when I'm nice? You know, boyfriend God, you know, bodyguard God, get all those gods, push him to the side. And the question is, what did Jesus say about God? What is God like? And here's just three key descriptors that, that Jesus gives us. The first is that God is spirit. John records for us a moment when Jesus was talking to a woman. We call her the woman at the well. I'm pretty sure we're going to get to heaven someday. And she's going to be like, I had a name. I'm like, okay, we didn't get that. You're just a woman at the well. Sorry. She's a Samaritan. Their view of God was very different from the Jewish. It was a spinoff of the Jewish view of God. And so imagine she's debating with Jesus about God. You're debating with Jesus. Jesus, I think you're going to lose. But he's having a friendly conversation with her. And again, remember, if you, know, if you want to know what God is like, watch what Jesus did. If you want to know what God is like, watch how he treated others. And he is showing extraordinary compassion to someone who is considered a total social and even religious outcast. And he says to her, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Now, you might miss it, but what makes this statement so amazing is, is that 2,000 years ago, this was written. Jesus said this. And the Jews then, and the ancient Jews before that as well, believed that God was immaterial, spaceless, and timeless. See, that's why they weren't allowed to have any images to depict God. Why? Because Jesus would say, because God is spirit, he's spaceless, he's timeless, he's immaterial, no image can capture God. And this flew in the face of all the pagan religions because they all had idols. They all had uh, temples for their idols. Everyone had household gods. And from the very beginning, the Jewish people said, no, God is spirit. And Jesus affirmed that. And what makes us so amazing is, especially if you were here the first week when we discussed the arguments from the new atheist about sci- from science, this is exactly what we modern people 2,000 years later with all of our scientific advances would expect. The scientific, scientific evidence overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly shows that there was a singularity, that there was an event, and from that one event, all space, all time, all matter, all the laws of, of nature and physics, from a minuscule nothing, suddenly there was everything. Jews and Christians alone have always believed what it took the scientific community millennia to conclude and to figure out an uncaused first cause. And I'll admit, early on when I was just trying to, what do I believe in thinking about God, I, this was a question I always wrestled with. Well, God created, well, who created God? Where did it all start? And what we understand is there had to be an uncaused first cause. And it's understood scientifically that the uncaused first cause would have been immaterial because everything that exists at one point did not exist. We know that the uncaused first cause is timeless, and we know that the uncaused first cause is spaceless. And we know whatever the uncaused first cause is, it is above and beyond the laws of nature. You could say that the first cause was above and beyond natural, supranatural. Jesus comes along and he simplifies it for the first century people. He says, let me just simplify. He says, just think of it this way. God is spirit. 
And this is exactly what we modern people would have to assume about an uncreated, uncaused first cause. God is spirit. Jesus also said God is father. But now our problem is that as soon as we hear the term father, for us it is loaded It is based on and defined by our individual good and bad experiences with an earthly father as it pertains to father. But when Jesus uses the term, it isn't a a reflection of earthly fathers. Rather, it's the perfection of father. There was a moment where Jesus' followers, they're watching him pray. They conclude, I don't think we're doing it right. They go to Jesus, say, hey, will you teach us to pray? So Jesus says, turns to them and he says, okay, this then is how you should pray. Our Father. He says, that's the starting point. Now, Jesus' point isn't that God is male or God is a man. God's not a man. God doesn't have a gender. God is God. Jesus' point is God is personal. And the best, the best earthly comparison for you, space, time, material, limited creatures, for you to understand the personal nature of your creator is Father. Just go with that. Whenever you talk to God, just begin with the perfection of Father. It's the best relational picture. In fact, later on, Jesus takes it a step further, makes all of us uncomfortable, and he refers to God as Abba, which in our our vernacular, the, the equivalent would be Dad or Daddy. In fact, if you were willing to just take a chance, I'd challenge you, maybe even tonight, just lying in bed before you go to sleep, just start, Father. Father, I'm not sure what I believe. Father, I'm, I'm new at this. Father, I, this is all I got. But would you help me to know you? Jesus says that that's the starting point, he, that he's spirit, he's father. He feels far away, but he's close. And then this third, third descriptor is so much bigger than we realize. After the resurrection and the ascension, the gospel writer, John, he's writing to some Christians, and he's thinking about what he learned about God from Jesus, his master. And he writes this statement that's just been so imprinted, not just on our hearts and minds, but it's been so imprinted on our Western culture that when people who claim this descriptor to be true about God if he exists, most have no idea where it really came from. You might be one of them. John said, God is spirit, God is father, and God is love. Now, now here's the thing. You need to understand that John's view of God had been completely rearranged, restructured, and turned upside down by Jesus, because John grew up believing that God loved the Jewish people, but he basically tolerated at best everybody else. Some of you, your God is a little switched version of that. Sometimes you feel like God loves everybody else, but he tolerates you. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Uh, But the Jewish people in the first century, they wouldn't even go into the home of a Gentile, and they would never invite a Gentile into their home. And John, who grew up with that God, who had also lost friends as martyrs and seen unspeakable bloodshed and hatred and racism and injustice and chaos and lack of love. He writes, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now think about the significance of this. John is reflecting back to the moment Jesus gathered the guys right before He knows he's about to be tortured and crucified. He knows it's coming and that God's going to allow it. And he knows it. And Jesus said, the number one thing I don't want you to ever forget is love one another. Why? Because this, this is the distinguishing mark of those who would follow me. Not 
what you know, what you memorize, what you do uh, on Sunday morning. No, loving one another as I have loved you because that kind of love, a love that loves in spite of, one that's not performance-based, that kind of love for other people reflects and declares the existence and the essence of God. No other faith system or religion ever claimed that about God or the gods. Now, let me illustrate it this way. I hope you had your coffee. Shadow requires light. Shade requires the sun. You can't have light without shadow, or you can't have light without shadow, but you can't have shadow without light. You can't have shadow if there is no light. Just as a shadow requires light, evil requires good. To know that something is evil requires good. It requires something, you know, if something blocks the light, it proves that there is light and it creates darkness. This is why God cannot be evil. This could be a little confusing, so let me say it another way. You, you're able to recognize evil and injustice because of the light that reveals it. So whenever you appeal to justice, for example, that's unjust. Whenever you appeal to love, you know, you need to do the loving thing. Whenever you appeal to right, you know, that's not right. You know, you should do the right thing. You are declaring the essence and the existence of God. When a person seeks shade, they declare the essence and the existence of the sun. And though Darwin and Hitchens and Harris and Hawkins and all these guys would say that, you know, the sense of self and value and justice is all an illusion, the reality is every single time we appeal to good and justice and what is right or loving, and we all do it, we in that moment declare the existence and the goodness of God. And here's the thing, if you've ever in your life said, you know, I just believe God loves everybody, don't miss this, you didn't make that up. You were taught that. that. That is distinctly a Christian teaching, and it started with John after spending time with Jesus. Before Jesus, people said the essence of the gods were a lot of things, but not love. Any religion that does, none of them find their origins before Jesus. They all came after. And John says that I've been with this man. I've been with the man who introduced us to the Father, and the best that I can put it is God is love. Now, that begs a huge question for us and for everyone that you know. And we're going to talk about it in depth next week. And that is, okay, if God is love, then why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much bad, so much death, so much injustice, so much death and destruction? I've got a better question for this week before next week. How and why do you know there's evil in the world? How and why do you recognize the world is broken? How and why do you recognize you're broken? And how and why is, why is it that you know what you ought to do, but you don't even do what you know you ought to do? I mean, let's be honest, God or not, you or I, there are things that we do we know we ought not do. Well, how do you know you ought not do that? Where does that come from? Why is it that I'm so comfortable in the shade? It's because of the existence of the sun. Why is it that I ever feel guilty about anything? Because there's a light. Why is it that I don't like church people who aren't even obnoxious about their beliefs, but they're just so good? Because they remind me of what I'm not. Have you ever noticed that whenever we ask the question, why is there so much bad in the world, that we're never pointing at ourselves? It's kind of like 
you know, we'll pick on the politicians, people on social media who, for example, they vilify, uh, I see a lot, vilify the rich, you know, tax the rich, uh, pretending as if they themselves aren't rich, by the way, uh, or even tax the church, which, by the way, as a pastor, I pay taxes, thank you, uh, not to mention churches and parachurch organizations happen to carry out the majority of global compassion and justice work. But the underlying assumption is that the government will somehow miraculously manage more money well when they struggle to steward the money well they're already collecting. So instead of, uh, you know, they just shout, rich people are the problem, but not me. And let's make it so we can spend more money that we don't have. I digress. Uh, like I read a few weeks ago, giving away other people's money does not make you generous. And consistently, those most vocal and shaming, for example, rich people, give little to nothing of their own resources to help others, even though they shout that we should give to struggling people more financial assistance. Yet they themselves don't see themselves as part of the problem. Or think about you and I, we hurt people. You and I, we, we hurt people that we love, we say that we care about. And we hurt them all the time, or we violate trust, or we bend the truth, or we put our own interests before others. But again, we say that there's so much bad in the world, yet we're never pointing our, at ourselves as part of the bad. The fact that we can recognize wrong and evil in the world declares the existence of the God who so many have decided don't exist. And ironically, we excuse it with, well, nobody's perfect. But what we don't realize is in the moment we make that statement, what we have stated is that there is a perfect, and I'm not it. But how do you know? How do you know? there's perfect. Where did we get that idea? John would say, I'll tell you where you got it. It's the thumbprint of God on your soul. John would say, I'll tell you where you got it because perfect love preceded all of us. And it shines a light. God is love. But John, how can we live in a world full of brokenness and pain and injustice and bloodshed and come to the conclusion that God is love? Don't miss next week. I'm going to close with this. When it comes to God, Jesus is our best picture. He is the place to start. Jesus is the most reliable source. Not the characters uh, or the bad represent representations you may have grown up with or seen in your life or seen over the past few years. So, so here's your homework assignment for this week. The first is just to read Isaiah 53. I think you're going to find it fascinating. It might lead you to read more, but Isaiah 53. Uh, the second thing is after you go to bed tonight, just begin a conversation with God. Maybe it's been a long, long time. Maybe you've just, like, I, I just never really prayed. And just start with Father. Would you give me the eyes to see you today? Start your Monday morning that way. And the last thing is that I want all of you to either... Find a Bible in your house, dust it off, download Version Bible app. I recommend the New International Version, the NIV. It's easy to understand. And just pull up the book of John. John is divided into 21 chapters. And they're not long. So basically over the next 21 days, in three weeks, you could just start your day reading one chapter a day. In three weeks, you would be done. I just want to ask you to read just the book of John. And then as you're reading, just ask yourself, this question. What do I learn about the Father from the Son? Because there's a lot at stake. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much that we have these amazing letters and documents that have survived antiquity, 
for all those that did all they could to meticulously copy these and protect them and carry them through the years and that now we have such just unfettered access to all of them. I pray for myself, for all of us in the room, for everyone listening to me, God, that you that you would continue to reveal yourself in unmistakable ways in our life because everything in life right now is so loud and so noisy. And God, that you would break through all of that to help us to see you, to know you, and to sense not just your existence, but your essence, your concern and care for us and what it is that you offer. I just pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.